Yeah, we're excited to hear how that goes. I want to invite you to open your book, uh, Bibles to the book of Matthew. We are going to be in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 today. We're in a series called Who's That Man? And so we have been studying through the book of Luke and trying to answer the question, what do we learn about Jesus? Who is Jesus according to these passages? And so we want to get a, uh, every time we look into scripture, we want to get a better view of God and we want to know more about his heart and his character, his ways, because we believe the more we know Jesus, the more we're transformed by him. And so that is what this is about. We're going to be in the book of Luke um, and we're going to start today actually at the end of ch- or chapter 6 in verse 12 and we're going we're gonna to begin kind of at the ending of this passage. We're going to do a little bit of like Tarantino here and end, start with the end of it and then we'll circle back to the beginning and hopefully it all comes together in a moment. But before we jump into Luke chapter 6 verse 12, pray with me. God, we thank you again for this morning and I ask now that my word to be yours and that as we look into your word, God, we want to be people who are changed and transformed by you and uh, by who you are and what you have done for us. So we give you this time now and ask that you would move in this place. In your name, amen. So Luke chapter 6, verse 12, and as I said, it's, the, it's kind of the end cap of a section of scripture that began at the beginning of chapter 5, and it ends here, and the reason I want to start with this, because I want to show you what, we want to ask the question, why does Luke choose to end this section with this calling of the disciples and naming his disciples, and we're going to go back and see what Jesus is actually doing through this section of scripture. So Luke chapter 6, verse 12 says this, It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. So in the morning, he called his disciples, and this disciple is a word for student. And at this point, we know that Jesus had a a number of disciples. It wasn't just the 12 that uh, maybe you're familiar with in reading in scripture or that you saw on a flannel graph sometime growing up or something like that. But this is a, a whole, a larger gathering of disciples were following him. And he called them together and he chose 12 of them that he appointed as apostles. And, and that essentially means the ones that were going to carry his message, that they were going to be his, the ones through whom he would begin this new movement that we know as Christianity. He said, you guys are the ones who are going to carry this message forward. In particular, you're kind of on the inner circle here. So he spent the night in prayer deciding who should I choose for the 12. And then it names the 12. It says Simon, who he named Peter. Andrew, his brother, and James and John, James and John were also uh, fishermen here, Uh, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who is called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. So this is how this section ends, with Jesus goes and he calls his 12 people together. Now, we're not going to do a study on all the disciples here today, but I just want to call out a couple things. As he says, he, he calls uh, Peter and Andrew, they were brothers, we were introduced to Peter a couple weeks ago, they were fishermen, Jesus calls them and says, hey, come and I'll make you a fisher of men, um, I, I want you to follow me, I'm going to teach you new ways. Uh, Andrew was his brother. Andrew was, uh, we know that uh, through the book of John, that he was very religious, studying scripture, searching for the Messiah. Um, then John and James, they also were brothers. They worked in the same fishing company as, as Simon and Andrew. And uh, they had, were given the nickname by Jesus, the Sons of Thunder. Uh, no doubt had something to do with their personality and how they responded to things. So that was Jesus' nicknames for them. Uh, then there was Philip. 
and, and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is, uh, he's listed in three of the Gospels, and in the book of John, we hear no mention of Bartholomew, but we hear of a guy named Nathaniel. Scholars, um, many believe that that's the same person. Some say, well, maybe it's not the same person. It's just uh, Bartholomew just isn't listed in the book of John because John never lists the, the 12 together. So we don't really know uh, much about him, but if he is Nathaniel, we know that he's from a town called Cana, and he also was very religious, longing for the Messiah, and had a, a great interaction with Jesus in John chapter 1. And then there was Matthew, who also sometimes goes by the name Levi. He's a tax collector. We'll be introduced to him today. Thomas, um, some know him as Doubting Thomas. He struggled with his faith. He uh, often was skeptical of things. At one point, when uh, Jesus was heading down to Jerusalem, he said, yeah, let's all go with him so we can die there with him. So Thomas is, is wondering if God would protect them in that. When Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas is the one who says, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I know he said he was going to, but I, unless I see it for myself, um, I don't know. So that's Thomas, um, and his name means twin. So he had a twin brother somewhere, but we never are introduced. James, the son of Alphaeus, that's everything we know about him. Um, <laughs> Simon, who is called the Zealot. Zealots were a group of Jews who actually were anti-Roman government. Uh, later, um, after Christ, or in that time, their movement became stronger and stronger. They actually were later designated as a domestic terrorist group. Um, they were known to hate tax collectors. And one of their tactics is they would go in crowded areas, walk up behind tax collectors, stab them with a dagger, and walk away. So um, zealots often had daggers. They were armed, um, and they were known for people with uh, daggers and um, would kill tax collectors. So Jesus thought, hey, let's put Matthew and Simon together. That'd be great. And... Uh, and then Judas, the son of James. We see in other cases, Judas, the son of James, goes by the name Thaddeus. Most uh, scholars believe that after the other Judas betrayed Jesus, this one said, I'm going to start going by Thaddeus. <laughs> so um, that's, that's the only explanation for why he has two names. And then Judas Iscariot, which um, most people don't really know why it says Iscariot. It either means a man from this town called Cariot, or it could have been um, another thing that refers to zealots. It's a sect of the zealots that's called the Sicarii. Um, either way, we, we know, what we do know about Judas is he was the, uh, the treasurer of the group, and so he had some training with finances and business, and yes, he became a traitor and betrayed Christ. So that is uh, when Jesus got away to pray all night, these are the guys he chose. Now, if you were a rabbi choosing a group of disciples, you say, I want you to be my inner circle because you are the ones I believe have what it takes to represent me well. And he goes away and chooses them. I, I, I think of this kind of similar to, I, I coach baseball and shared uh, the, the process. We have this draft before the season. And so uh, you, you get your students or your, your players and you look at all of them and you kind of pick the ones you want on your team. Now, when I put my team together, I always have to ask the question, who are the players and the families? And sometimes I start with who are the families and then who cares what the players are. But who are the, the players and the families that represent the type of team that I want to put together? Who are the kids that I want to have that I think have my, the personality I'm looking for? That's the team I want. And, and, and so sometimes in the draft, when you're picking your players, I assume other coaches do the same, but when they, sometimes they'll make a choice and I look at it and think, what are they thinking? 
Why would they pick that person? But sometimes they haven't. Either they're brilliant or they're going to struggle this year. And so uh, that's kind of sometimes what that thought is. But when at the end you say your team represents you and the move where you want to go. I look at what Jesus did and I think the other rabbis must have looked at his team and thought, what is he trying to do? What is this group that he just picked? And, and, but he got away for the night to pray. And this is something as well as I, I coach with Brett Herman, um, Devin, who's our, our children's director. It's her husband. I, he's coaching with me this year. And I told him, before we, the draft, what I want to do is I take time to pray. Now, it's not all night. Um, but I, it takes some time to pray and say, God, who are the players and the kids that you want on our team? And make sure they can hit a fastball. And that's my prayer every year. And then you choose the team. So Jesus does the same. He says, who do you want journeying with me? Who are the ones through whom we're going to begin this movement called Christianity? And it's this group. Now, it's interesting that this, this list is put at the end of chapters 5 and chapter 6. Or at the end of a section, I should say, of chapter 5 and 6. Because it's a section that begins, and the author, Luke, is introducing us to some new ideas. Where Jesus is interacting with sinners and with religious people, and it ends with, at the end, he says, okay, so now that you kind of get what I'm redefining and what I'm doing, here's the people. So that's how it ends here. Now we're going to circle back to the beginning and see what is Jesus communicating with this new movement. Because I believe this is, at the end of this, is because Jesus is redefining their understanding of who God is and redefining faith. And so we're going to look at a series of stories here and see what is Jesus Redefining, And one way we can think of it is it's Jesus is redefining religion. In fact, Christianity, according to Jesus, that the way he lived and, and taught his followers, it was so radically different that for the first 200 years, the Romans actually called Christians atheists because they couldn't understand it. They said, you're so utterly different than every other religion. You must, not, you must be atheists. You don't, even have, you don't follow God. You don't believe in God because you're so different. And so Jesus is redefining their understanding of God. And it ends with this choosing of the 12 saying this cap, uh, caps it all off. So now, what is he redefining? Let's go back now to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And we really began this section three weeks ago with the calling of Peter when it was an unlikely story to call these fishermen to follow him. And then last week, we saw two stories where Jesus healed a leper who was, that would have made, the, the guy with leprosy was unclean, but Jesus touches him and takes away his uncleanliness, but Jesus takes it upon himself, and, which is a symbol of the gospel where Jesus takes on our sin, becomes sin so that we may be whole. He does that. And then the next story we saw last week was with the, we were introduced to these people called the Pharisees who were teachers of the law, and they're watching and Jesus heals a, a man who was a paralytic, but not just did he heal him, but he proclaimed forgiveness of his sins. It was one of those moments where Jesus proclaimed that he was God. Because they said, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, you're right. So son, your sins are forgiven. So right there, he's declaring that he was God and had authority to forgive sins. So that's what got us up to this point. Now, chapter 5, verse 27, he just proclaimed forgiveness of sins. They were in a crowded house. Now, verse 27. After that... Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi. This is also, uh, he also goes by the name Matthew. He was sitting in a tax booth, and Jesus says to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. 
Now, again, a little context here. A tax collector, he's sitting in a tax booth, so his particular brand of collecting taxes was it was, a, it was a, like a custom tax. It was a tax on people's goods. So a fisherman who had a big load of fish would have to be taxed on it, and Matthew, or Levi here, would say, okay, you just caught ten fish, so you owe me three, or you owe me four. Or in some cases, some of the taxes was well over 50%. So we can relate well to it here in California uh, of their, their system. So that was the form of taxes that he collected. Now, this person, or, or most tax collectors were very wealthy. Most of them were seen as being pretty dishonest too. Because there wasn't a set price. There was, they would collect a tax. He would then pay it to the governor who was Herod, Antipas, over this area. He would have to give him some taxes um, that would pay for the Roman soldiers. And then he had to take his cut to take care of himself. And then maybe a little bit more just because. So most tax collectors were pretty wealthy. Um, and also because his form of collecting taxes was on stuff that people produced. Uh, usually it meant the upper class weren't taxed by him, but it was the working class. So you can see that there's some animosity uh, that, would, that people would feel towards him. The other thing is this, is if you were a Jewish person and you see... Uh, this tax collector, he was a Jew who was working for the Roman government, so he was considered to be a traitor, betraying his faith, betraying his country. He was helping support Rome. So that's what they think about tax collectors. That's why throughout the New Testament, often you see tax collectors lumped together with sinners. It says tax collectors and sinners. We see that often because that's their reputation. So Jesus walks out of a house there's Pharisees watching, religious teachers watching. He just healed a guy. He leaves the house. He sees Matthew and he says, hey, Matthew, come follow me. Why don't you join in with this? Now, I don't believe, and we have no reason, I mean, it, there's no other evidence, but I don't believe this is the first interaction Jesus had with him. Uh, based on the story with the other disciples, it seems to reason that they had talked already, that they knew of each other. In fact, they just had a huge haul of fish uh, two chapters ago or earlier in this chapter and they probably had to pay taxes on those fish they probably knew Matthew probably showed up pretty quickly when he said what there's a lot of fish let me go check this out give me my cut who knows but Jesus had probably seen him around he was in that area of Capernaum and he says Matthew you see what's going on here come join me follow me I want you to come with and Matthew leaves everything behind and began following Jesus and then, or Matthew, Levi, and then Levi gave a big reception for Jesus at his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. So his first response is, I, I'm coming, Jesus, and then you, I've got to introduce you to my friends. Let me tell everyone who I know. So he invites the people he knows who are what? Other tax collectors, because everyone else hated him. So they have this band of people. So other tax collectors, and it says, and other people, they're here. They're here for a big reception with Christ. Again, this is a foretaste. This is a picture of the good news of Jesus. It's a foretaste of heaven. There's a banquet. They're reclining at the table together. Reclining together at the table was a sign of fellowship. It meant acceptance. So Jesus is accepted into their group. He's with them with fellowship. And he invited his friends. He wanted them to see this. The uh, 19th century scholar J.C. Ryle says this, a converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. 
He's transformed and changed by the invitation of Christ. And his first response is, I've got to, you've got to meet my friends. You've got to meet my friends. So he gave a big reception. And people were there. And the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and with sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So of course I'm here. Of course we're with them. That's who I'm here for. Now, when we understand all of Scripture, it's a quick question. Who, who are the sinners? Anyone have an idea? Who are the sinners? Yeah, all of us, right? So sometimes you read that passage and it seems like he's saying in the face of the Pharisees, he's saying, well, I've come to call them, but not you. But actually, it's an underhanded way of saying like, no, I've come for sinners. They're sinners. You are too, but I'm here with them right now. There's no separation. So he says, I come to call not the righteous, but sinners. If what you do makes you right in the eyes of God, that's the word righteousness, having a right relationship, if you, everything in your life makes you right with God and there's no separation, then you don't need me to come and to make things right. But if there is a separation, that's why I have come to bridge that gap and to once and for all make a way for sinners. So, first, when I, I started off and said this whole section is Jesus is redefining our understanding of, of faith or understanding of religion. And the first part of this we see here is Jesus is redefining the relationship between God and sinners. And it's actually not necessarily redefined, but it's, he's, giving, he's reminding them of the real truth. The real truth that we all sin and we all fall short. But he's making a very clear statement that here is where it's very clear where God is saying it is about a response to the initiating love of God. Our response as sinners is a response to what God has done. It's not God's response to us. In this dining with Matthew, with Levi, with the sinners and tax collectors, is a reminder that it comes from God to us. See, because notice in the story, what did he ask Levi to do before he followed him? You see where he told him to go down to the temple and to make a sacrifice for the sins he's made and, and to kind of pay off his debt? Do you see where he, where he told him to go memorize some scripture and get, get himself cleaned up first? Because it's not in there. If you're looking like, my version does not have that in here anywhere. I don't. No, because what Jesus is redefining is it is about the initiating love of God in our response to him, not the other way around. The religious leaders would often think it's we need to make ourselves holy enough so God accepts us in. But we know through Scripture none of us will ever get there. We'll never be holy enough. So Jesus reminds us here that it, He comes down. He dines with us. He invites us in and it is our response. In fact, it's interesting because here in chapter 5, it's the beginning, as I mentioned, where Luke introduces the two different characters. He introduces sinners and the Pharisees, or the teachers of the law. Those whose society would call the good ones, the righteous ones. And Luke carries this theme throughout the teachings of Jesus. He keeps pointing to us in the book of Luke. In fact, in chapter 15, there's this famous story that many would be familiar with called the prodigal son. And in the prodigal son, he actually teaches it 
It starts off by Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and Pharisees, and he tells them this story. So these two groups are with him, and they keep popping up through the book of Luke. And it's very significant because I believe that Jesus, in redefining faith, is saying, hey, you guys are both in the same boat, but there's different, you're just on different sides of the same problem. And in the story of the prodigal son, which is ten chapters later, we have the bad son, who could be the tax collectors. The bad son is the one who said, Father, give me what you, what, I, what, what you owe me. In fact, even that, he didn't owe it to him. He said, I want my inheritance. I want it now. I am going to go on this life of self-discovery. I'm going to go live the way I want to live. I want to do the things that make me feel good. I want to live the way that, that seems right in my eyes. And I spit on you, Father, and everything that you have. Give me what's mine now. He's the bad son. He goes. He hits the bottom of of his rope, he, he, where he loses it all, and he says, I need the only place I could possibly go for comfort from here is to go back to my father. But he says, but I can't even be his son anymore, so I'm going to go back, and I'm going to beg him to let me be a servant, a slave. In other words, I have sinned against my father, and I'm going to earn my way back into his favor. I'll never be a son again, but at least I can earn back food. So I'm going to go and pay my debt as best as I can. And it's this works-based religion. And Jesus tells a story about the bad son, the sinner. Many of us can probably relate with the bad son, that we like to go away. And it, it, Tim Keller calls it the, the life of self-discovery. This is very popular in our world. Find your own way. That in your own way, then you can manipulate God and people your own way. You want to discover God on your own or discover life on your own. God's just a piece of it out here. And that's the bad son in the story. That's the sinners. But our natural response as sinners is let us work our way back. Let us pay our debt when we finally realize we want to repent. But in that story, the father sees the bad son coming and he runs to him, the initiating love of God. And he puts the best coat on him and the best robe or the best coat would have been the father's coat. And he clothes him when he's still dirty. He didn't say shower and I'll put the best coat on you. He says, put the best coat on him now. Sign of Christ, clothing us in our dirtiness. He takes what is his and puts it on us. The bad son. See, Jesus is redefining the relationship with sinners. As the story goes on, we're going to get to the other side of the people in just a moment. As the story goes on now here in chapter 5, what's the next thing that Jesus redefines? He redefines this bridge between the sinners and the good son. We're going to look at that in a moment, but we find it's our natural response to create rules and laws like the bad son. Let me work my way back to God. Jesus now interacts here in chapter 5, verse 33, with a series of interactions that show he's redefining even our religious acts. Look at this. The Pharisees said, Hey, the disciples of John the Baptist, they, offer, uh, they often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said, Well, you can't make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and they will fast in those days. So he's referring to himself, saying, Hey, while I'm here, my disciples don't need to fast. They don't need to uh, mourn and, and, and pray for the day that the Messiah will come and make things right because I'm here, I'm with them. So you can't do that to them here. He's redefining their understanding. And then he told them a parable. 
And Jesus said, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, both will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. Makes a lot of sense, right? Really contextualized, 21st century. Got it? <laughs> then he says, no one will put new wine skin into, into new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, a new wine will burst and the skins of it will be spilled out. And the, and the skins will be ruined. And the wine will spill out. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. No one, after drinking the old wine, wishes for the new, for he says the old is good enough. Again, really contextualized, right? So what is going on here? So they just had this interaction, and now the Pharisees are asking Jesus, why do your disciples do the things you do? I think, aren't there different rules they should be following? And then Jesus uses this quick, this little parable, and, and for years I kind of, I've heard so many interpretations, but I believe the common consensus is it's this idea when you have new wine, it would be put into a wineskin which is made of leather, and it would be new, fresh leather. So that when the new wine ferments, it expands, and the fresh leather can expand. Once it's expanded and it dries out, you, and you, it can't expand again, it'll crack and break. So that's the picture that he's saying. So he says, you couldn't take new wine and put it into a wineskin that's already been stretched. Because it won't be able to keep stretching, it'll break and spill out. Great, now we all understand, right? Pray and go home. (laughs) The quick answer to what he's saying here is, Jesus is saying, your ways and my ways don't mix. I want you to know that your understanding of the ways of how faith looks and the ways I'm teaching you and demonstrating to you, it doesn't mix. In fact, he ends and says, often people are so comfortable, they have the old wine and they say, this is good enough. This is good enough. I don't, need a, I don't need anything else. What we do is good enough. So Jesus, why are you coming and changing things? And actually, if you read through the book of uh, Luke and start in chapter 5, his interaction with the Pharisees start off actually not that bad. They start off kind of, they're just watching. But it increasingly, they start th- thinking, wait a minute, you're really changing too much. In fact, it keeps going. What else does he, how does he redefine this? It keeps going in chapter 6. It says, now it happened that Jesus was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking heads of grain. They were rubbing them in their hands, and they were eating the grain. And some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how they entered the house of God, they took and ate the consecrated bread. And that was not lawful for anyone to eat except for the priests. And he gave it to his companions. And then Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 22, where he's telling the same story, Jesus actually says, Sabbath wasn't made for, for man, or Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So as Jesus is redefining religion, and, and we see this series of interactions, what he's saying is, you've got some of the, the practices, you, you've got the general principle right, but you're missing the point. You're missing the point. In fact, for you, your religion is, you're making this the thing. And he uses an example of Sabbath. Now, not many of us really worry about our law of Sabbath anymore. In the Jew, my wife and I and our kids, we lived in Jerusalem for a year, and we actually, in a city, in a town that still participates in Sabbath as biblical as they can. And it, it was from the time of Christ, and even to this day, it's intended to be a day of rest. And the point of the Sabbath being a day of rest is that God took six days to create the world, and on the seventh, he rested. So he said, if you're created in my image, work for six days, and on the seventh, rest. 
The point is, on that day of rest, you're reminded it points you to God. The day of rest reminds you that God is your creator. The day of rest reminds you that he is your provider. The day of rest reminds you that you're in his image, and if he rests, you should rest. It is all designed to point you back to the creator. In fact, what Jesus shows us time and time again, it's our religious acts are tools that are supposed to point us to God. When he says the Sabbath was made for man, he's saying the reason the Sabbath was created is to serve you. It's to point you to God. But you've made it now where you serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is controlling you. You've created so many rules to follow the rules that it's no longer Sabbath. In fact, we know it, uh, in the time of Christ, one uh, student, rabbi, a student of a rabbi said, the Sabbath is a glorious day. Then he said, but it is an oppressive day. Isn't it interesting on the day for them that was supposed to be a day of rest became oppressive because how much work it took to rest? Some of us relate to that, don't you? When you say, I just need some time, I'm just going to rest today. It's a lot of work to rest. You've got to get the house clean, you've got to get the kids out of your hair, you've got to, you know, it's a lot, it's like going on vacation. How much work is it that day before vacation? <laughs> just so you can actually rest. But they would work the entire day of Sabbath. In fact, to this day when you live in Jerusalem, uh, they say you can't drive on the Sabbath because if you drive, you're starting your car. And if you start your car, that fires a spark and the spark ignites and you can't create new fire on the Sabbath because that's creation. And so as soon as you create fire, start your car, you're now working on the Sabbath. So if you drive your car, you're working on the Sabbath. We had a friend who we were studying with. He drove his car through the wrong neighborhood on the Sabbath and they pelted him with rocks. And so everyone was getting into stoning his car with rocks, to which I was like, is throwing rocks work or is it not? I, I, don't, I don't know what the line is with that. But the, it is so religious. In fact, one of the first days we were there, we were walking on the Sabbath, walking from the church we attended through this park, and we met some new friends who, he's a Hebrew scholar, a Jewish family, became friends of ours, and um, he's a professor at Syracuse, but they were studying there as well. And when we, I asked them, the first thing, I was pushing one of our kids in a stroller. I'm like, does this count as work? And they said, no, no, because he can't do it on his own. Okay. And then they said, well, how far can I walk? Because there's rules on how far you can walk. They said, well, hey, she said, it's easy living where we live. Because in Jerusalem, the line of where you can walk is the whole city, which is like walking through San Diego. So I went, oh, okay, cool. Because there's actually a line around the city where you live. If you walk past it, now you're no longer, if you're more than a half-day journey from home, you now have worked. So, because uh, you have to create food. So, there's still laws to this day to rest. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he says, you've mixed things up. See, you think that your religion, your religious acts, the law, I'll put it that way, that you are now serving the law, but the law is not serving you. You see, Jesus actually never speaks against the law. He didn't say don't follow the Sabbath. He does not say that here. In fact, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to uphold it. Because Jesus understood that the law was there to serve man, to point us to Christ. It, it, it in and of itself is not a bad thing. The commands of God are good things. Jesus never says, you should throw out all of my commands and don't worry about obedience to me. He never says that. In fact, in every turn, Jesus gives us a, a higher interpretation of the law. He says, the Ten Commandments, it says, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, that's a good rule, but let me put it this way. Don't even lust after someone who's not your spouse. 
He didn't say, don't worry about all the rules. But he knew the rules are there to serve you. They're to point you to God. And you've now made them the thing when they are just a thing to point you to God. Now, we don't struggle with Sabbath today, I don't think. But what are the rules we do struggle with? What are the things that you have made the thing rather than the thing pointing you to Christ? We do that with studying Scripture. Do we think that studying Scripture is important? The answer is yes. I think we should all have a regular practice of reading the Bible, of understanding the character of God, the ways of God, and we, I believe that truth transforms and changes us the more we can see and understand who God is. But sometimes we make the thing of studying Scripture to be the main thing. It becomes what we serve rather than it serving us. Maybe you say, well, you know, but it's really important. It is really important. But do you look at others and say, well, you're not reading it right. You read the message? That's not really scripture. You should be reading the King James. That's what Jesus spoke. I've seen the movies. Some of you are very righteous when it comes to the, your interpretation of the Bible and getting it right. You, that, you are serving that. Maybe it's prayer. Oh, you didn't get up at 5.30 to pray today? There's an old saying, some people wake up in the morning and say, good morning, Lord, and others wake up and say, good Lord, it's morning. So that's sometimes how we start off our day in prayer. But some of you are so good with prayer that you look at others and say, hey, you need to be praying more. You're not holy enough if you pray that way. You only pray before the meal. I was with my uncle this week, and he's notorious. He's a doctor, and he's notorious for having 10-minute prayers before meals. And he literally has like a 10-minute prayer and mentions every body part. And, and, and then my other uncle was there. He goes, well, I want you to pray because you're with us. And I'm just like, okay. And mine seriously is just, God, we just thank you for this food and your provisions. Amen. And they looked up like, that it? <laughs> it's like, I don't know the names of any body parts. So he's got, God's got it. But see, we can make our own prayer life to be the thing that we serve rather than serving us and pointing us to Christ. Giving. Oh, see, I started with the easy ones, right? Giving, I think, is important. I believe the way we handle our finances is a reflection of our heart. Jesus speaks about it more than any other thing. It's one of the main things when he ties it to the kingdom of God and our posture before the king because he knows that that is something that can own us. And so he speaks about it. Giving, I believe, is really important. Does it make you a Christian if you give a portion of your finances? It does not make you a Christian. But a Christian who never gives, I would say there's a piece of your life, a piece of your heart that you're hanging on to. You're saying, God, you can have everything but this because this is mine. A Christian reading the scripture does not make you a Christian. But a Christian who never reads scripture, I would say, well, how are you getting to know God more? How are you being changed by who he is? These are things that serve us to point us to God. Jesus is saying, hey, your religion is supposed to, your, the Sabbath is supposed to point you to Christ, but you keep making it the thing. So he's redefining even that. And the final thing where we see how Jesus, today at least, that we're looking at how he's redefining things is how he's re interacting with the teachers of the law, with the righteous one. As the story goes on in, chapter, in verse 6, he says, On another Sabbath, Jesus entered a synagogue. He was teaching, and there was a man whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. So now they've gone from questioning to now we're seeking out, finding reason to accuse him. And Jesus knew what they were thinking, 
And he told the man with the withered hand, he said, come forward. And he asked, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? Is it good to save a life or destroy it? Which, by the way, was in their own rules, that you're permitted to save life. And looking around, he said, stretch out your hand. And he healed the man. And the man did so, and his hand was restored. restored. But they themselves were filled with rage, and they discussed together what they might do to Jesus. See, Jesus' interaction with the religious ones was being redefined. Going back to the story of the good, the prodigal son. Remember, there's the two characters. There's a good son and a bad son. The sinners and the Pharisees are in this story. And the bad son is easy to understand. He went away. He rebelled against God. But the good son said something in the story. When the bad son came back and the father threw a great feast for him, welcomed him in, the initiating love of God, and said, I will pour out, I am going to restore you because that's the kind of God I am. The good son looked at this and he was mad. In fact, he said, Father, everything you have ever told me to do, I have done it. Every law that was ever written down, I followed it. Everything you wanted me to do, I do it perfectly. Every Sunday I wake up and go to church. Every week I give a tithe check. Every day I read my Bible and I pray. I, I follow every rule. And then you take a portion of my inheritance and you give it to someone who doesn't deserve it. That's what the good son said. He said, why did you kill the fattened calf for him? Why is that a big deal? The fattened calf, was a, this was really important, really expensive. It was a delicacy. They didn't eat meat very often. And why did he really care? Because that was his portion of the inheritance. He said, now you're taking what's mine and giving it to someone who doesn't deserve it. Why are you being so good when I'm the good one? See, Jesus, throughout the book of Luke, is redefining his relationship with the religious ones and saying, Maybe the thing that's keeping you from God is not your bad acts, it's your good acts. Maybe your righteousness that is so centered on yourself is the one thing that's preventing you from seeing Christ. There's a Flannery O'Connor novel where one of the characters in it uh, kind of is rebelling from God and creates his own religion, um, and and his own religion is called the Church of of God Without Christ. And there's a a line in there that says, if you want to avoid Jesus, you have to avoid sin. And and the whole idea is when you have sin, then all of a sudden you're encountering Christ. And and so they had their own legalism and dogma set up so they had to live a perfect life, but it was all a perfect life without God. And I think that sometimes we find ourselves in that same boat, that we end up on the other side. Someone after first service actually said to me, sometimes it's very easy for me to go from the bad son to the good son pretty easily. I can go from the sinner in needing of repent, repentance to being the judgmental, righteous one who does everything right. And someone else in our circle said, yeah, that, sometimes that's me day to day. <laughs> some days I wake up as a good son, some days I wake up as a bad son. As I invite the worship team up, we ask how we can respond. The question really for us today that Jesus is really interacting with and and presenting everyone wasn't a question of whether you perfectly keep the law, whether you're on the outside or inside, in the eyes of everyone, it's how do you respond to God? What is your motivation? Because again, Jesus never once says, don't worry about obedience to God the Father. On the contrary, that's very important. Our lifestyles matter. 
we want to be people who look different because we're changed and transformed by who God is. We want to know his ways and live them out. But it really comes down to motivation. What is your motivation in response to all of this? Why are we obedient to God? Are you like the bad son, responding and trying to earn your way back to make amends for everything that you've done wrong? Or are you like the good son, trying to keep what you already have? They're both ways of manipulating God because they're based on your acts. I like the way Tim Keller talks about it. He actually is, in contrasting the two, says motivation uh, is the key. And he says, true Christians, when we look at our lives, we're filled with wonder, amazement, and gratitude that God would accept us despite our brokenness, despite our righteousness, our self-righteousness. True Christians are filled with wonder and amazement and gratitude. When asked whether they are Christian, they say things like, I know, isn't that unbelievable? Can you believe that God would extend his mercy to someone like me through Christ? I'm amazed. I'm grateful. I'm overwhelmed. See, Jesus, in redefining faith, is saying, it's all about coming in contact with who I am and responding to what I pour out for you. It's about the love of God and the life of God given to us, lived through us. And our response to him is, are we in amazement, gratitude, and wonder? We're going to end our time here with one final song, and I want to ask you to stand with us as we sing it. Because our response really is a response that I believe should be our response every time is, God, I am amazed that though I'm the bad son some days, that you pour out your love. I am amazed that sometimes I get so religious and so self-righteous and so excited about what I can accomplish that you still pour out your love and grace and forgiveness on me. I'm so amazed that when you chose the 12 disciples and it was a group that did not look like a very good group, that my name is in there. And when Jesus looks at the group of Seacoast Church and the angels in heaven say, Jesus, are you sure those are the ones you want to choose? Are you sure? You've got traitors in there. You've got doubters in there. You've got self-righteous ones. You've got a pretty messed up group. I'm sure we could find a better group somewhere. He says, no, 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 that's who I want. Because it's not about them, it's about me. So let's respond with amazement and wonder and gratitude because it's about God and his glory, not ours. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time and ask that you keep changing us, keep transforming us. Lord, for the times when we're Pharisees, Lord, I pray for forgiveness. Give us open hearts and to recognize that our goodness doesn't save us. Your goodness does. And Lord, for the times when we're the sinners and tax collectors, Lord, we need to fall on your mercy. And we are in amazement and wonder that you accept us in our broken state. So now as we end our time, we just give this as a declaration to you that you are good and all glory is to you. We give you this time.